0: and we're jumping over to Mark. Last week, Jamie Brewer, if you were here, uh, introduced us to uh, Jesus in Mark. It was the first time that we see Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to dial back and we're going to look at John the Baptist this morning. Mark does not have a infancy or birth story about Jesus. He just jumps right in. So this is Mark 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message After me will come one more powerful than I the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you've been coming here for a while, you probably already know what direction I'm going to take this. This is John's deal. This is the thing that God had for him. He was a a guy who had a call on his life to prepare the way for the Lord. At our church, we have two Bible verses that dictate everything we do. One is Romans 8.29, that God desires for us to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's a character issue. When God cracks open your chest and he looks inside, he wants to see your heart shaped like the heart of Jesus. And our desire is to help you get there as much as possible before you die. We want you to look like Jesus. And the second is Ephesians 2.10, that God's created good works in advance for us to do or for us to walk in. So there's this. that's a lifestyle verse to me. thats to do with how we're living our life. And for John, his deal, God's will for him, God's plan, God's purpose, whatever you want to call it, was to prepare the way for the Lord. And what I want all all of us to see is that's the deal for all of us. It looks different in each of our lives, but for all of us, we're called to prepare the way for the Lord. Um, In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples, teach them everything that I've taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Us doing our deal. That's how each of us fulfills the Great Commission. We each have a part to play. And that part is in this broader umbrella of what God is doing. John one, 1 or excuse me, Mark 1, one, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So John's thing fits under this umbrella of what God is doing through Jesus. And the same thing is true for all of us. We talk all the time about our deals and we can think, oh, well God's just in this for us. It's about my contentment, it's about my fulfillment, it's about my happiness, it's about my satisfaction. It's actually not. It's about what God is doing in in the world and how we fit in to that. And each of us has a part to play. Everybody has equal worth or equal value. That comes from the fact that we're created in the image of God. So no matter how close to Jesus or far from Jesus someone is, no matter where they are on the socioeconomic ladder, no matter uh, how talented someone is or how untalented, no matter how capable or incapable, none of that matters. We've all been created in the image of God. And therefore, all of us have inherent dignity, inherent worth, inherent value. But when it comes to significance... That's tied to how we do our deal. Our lives have significance as we do what God has called us to do. You can think of a puzzle. A piece of a puzzle costs half a cent or whatever it is to produce, and they all have equal value because that's how much it costs to produce a piece of a puzzle. But when it comes to significance, the significance of the pieces is only when they're put in their proper position to make this larger picture. And the same thing is true for us. We all have everybody, again, everyone who's been created by God, which is everyone, the 120 billion people over the course of the history of the earth, all of them, equal worth, equal value, because created in the image of God. But when it comes to significance of life, that varies a lot. And it's based, to me, solely on whether or not you did your thing, whether or not you did your deal. The third most powerful king in the history of Israel is a guy you've never heard of. His name was Omri. For 150 years after his death, Israel was known as the House of Omri. He was internationally known for hundreds of years after he died. He gets six verses in the Bible. He's insignificant in the grand scheme of things from God's perspective because according to God, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so God dismisses him with a few verses. Even though in the world's eyes, he is behind David and Solomon, the most powerful king in the history of Israel. The most successful, second most successful king economically in the history of Israel, behind Solomon. It's another guy you've never heard of, Jeroboam II. He reigned for 41 years. He gets seven verses in 2 Kings. This is a guy who, under his rule, again, second to Solomon, The people enjoyed the most prosperity they've ever known. And God dismisses him in less than 200 words because he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. When it comes to significance, what matters is, did I play my part? God, You might feel like God's given you five talents. You might feel like he's given you two. You might feel like he's given you one. I don't care. He's given you something. And what he wants to know is, what are you doing with what I've given you? Are you walking in the things that I created you to walk in and that I created for you? To walk in. If the answer is no, then the significance of your life is going to drop because He's the judge and ultimately He's the only one that matters. And if the answer is yes, even if you feel insignificant, even if you feel like whatever your deal is, it doesn't matter. It's this little bitty thing and nobody knows about it. God knows. And He's the judge and that's what He's looking for. So our, for us, when it comes to significance, tied 100% to whether or not we're doing our deal. Are we playing our part in what God is doing? in our world, during our lifetime. It's a yes or no question. Verse 2. Send, uh, it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This one's tricky for some of us. John's deal was predetermined. So this... Isaiah was written probably 600 years before John was born. Part of this quotation comes from Malachi, which was written about 400 years before John was born. All of this was already decided before John's great-grandparents were even born. Here's the thing that you're going to do. Now, for most of us, our thing has not been prophesied from hundreds of years. Beforehand, we're not going to find it. It was written anywhere. But Ephesians 2.10 says, God created in advance the good works that we're going to walk in. He created in advance. Before you were born, He did create this stuff that He wants you to do. And it is predetermined. And for some of us, that makes us feel special. And yes, God has a plan for me, and I want to figure out what that is, and I want to run after it, and I want to do it. And for others of us, when you hear predetermined, it makes you angry, manipulated. You're a free spirit, and you want to chart your own course, and you don't want anybody pulling strings. And does that mean the choices that you make don't matter? And uh, You kind of run down that road. It may, you resent the fact that God's created something for you to do. And it makes you want to run in the opposite direction. For some of you, it's fear. Well, what if what God has for me is not as good as what I could come up with on my own? What if His will for my life is less fulfilling or less successful or less fun or less interesting or less than what I want to do on my own? And for some of you, it's just disbelief. You disqualify yourself. Well, that's not for me maybe based on your past or based on the fact that you feel like you don't have any talents or gifts or you're not very spiritual or you don't know how to hear the Lord or whatever it is, you've already decided that this stuff doesn't apply to you. Maybe for everybody else, but for you it doesn't work. God might have good things in advance for everybody else, but he left you out of that mix. Regardless of how your reaction, what I want to say to you is it gets down to an issue of trust. Do you trust the Lord to have a better deal for you than you can come up with on your own? Again, that's a yes or a no question. I know most of you, I know many of you, you've already made a decision. You're following Jesus. You've placed your eternal destiny in his hands. If there's heaven, whatever that looks like, you're trusting him to get you there. But it's hard for you to trust him with Tuesday, which is a little strange. Strange. I trust you with the $20 million I'm going to inherit from my parents. I don't trust you with the $20 that's in my wallet right now. That's the trade that we're making. I trust you with forever, but I can't trust you with the next 30 or 40 or 50 years, which is a blip on the radar screen in terms of forever. Because we live, it, this is tangible and we can make choices and all of those things, the temptation for all of us is to grab the wheel and to drive. Because we don't know where the Lord is going to take us. And it's the easiest thing in the world is to grab the reins back from him. And my encouragement to you is when you're tempted to do that, to stop. Do I trust him more than I trust me? Do I trust his plan for my life more than I trust mine? Do I trust that the things that he's prepared for me are better than the things I've prepared for myself? Just go through that. I think, if you're honest, the answer is yes. Then it's just a matter of actually putting that trust into practice, which I will say is tricky. If that's not something that you've done just for the sake of full disclosure, initially that's not an easy thing to do. God's going to ask you to let go of some things that to you, you can't imagine living without. Some things that maybe they're tied to your identity. It might be something that you've built, that you've worked towards, that you put a lot of effort into. And he's probably going to ask you to lay that down for a little bit. Maybe it comes back around, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But I think that's kind of part of it. And you might say, well, what am I laying it down for? Show me. I'll walk through the door, I just need to know what's in the room. He doesn't really do that either. A lot of times he says, walk through the door and then I'll turn the light on. But you got to walk through first. Do you trust me enough to walk in, to let go of what you're holding on to, to walk into this dark room and trust that when I turn on the light, it's going to be better than what you left? That's a hard thing. For a lot of us to do. But that's what it looks like to trust the Lord. And when it comes to your life. That's a regular choice that we have to make. That's not a one time deal. That's for me it's weekly if not daily. And for for you I would imagine it's the same thing. I'm going to trust your plan for my life more than mine. I'm going to trust that the good works you've called me to. Even though there are times where I don't enjoy them very much. I'm going to trust that those things are better than the good works I can come up with. On my own. So again, it's predetermined for all of us. If you're a person, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're hugging Jesus or running away from him as fast as you can, God's created good works for you to do, and he wants you to embrace those. And the same God that created those good works created you. That's Psalm 139, and they fit together like a hand in a glove. And if that's something that you have not embraced, you're always going to feel that low-grade frustration that you feel right now that sense of restlessness that there must be something more, there's more to life than this, all of that, absolutely there is, is because you're not living according to the design of your Creator. And if you would, all of that would go away. That's His way of stirring your heart, of calling you back to Him, which begins with making a decision to be in a relationship with His Son, Jesus, and then proceeds from there to living the life that He's created for you to live. we got to move. And so John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so that phraseology has the behind it the idea that John's emergence was tied to God's plan. All of these things were written, and so, or because, and and therefore John came onto the scene. And for all of us, there should be these and so moments in our lives. God expects obedience. He doesn't give suggestions. He gives commands. This is the life I have for you. These are the good works I've created for you to do. The expectation is you're going to then do them. Not say, you know what? I kind of like what I'm doing better instead. It doesn't work that way. He's saying, here's the life that I have for you to live. And he expects us to then live that life. If you've been following him for any length of time, which for me is more than a week, you should be able to look back and see these and so moments. God stirred my heart. That's weird sounding. He spoke to me through the Bible. I learned something true. Or I heard something from a message. Or I read it in a devotional book. Something became true to me. Or God led me in some way. I had a feeling about a direction I should go. I had these thoughts that weren't mine in my head that I couldn't shake. I felt convicted. That is, I knew there was something I was doing that was right. Or that I should be doing. or Something I'm doing that was wrong that I need to quit. You know how that works. God speaks in a lot of different ways. Not audibly, Very rarely usually through these other ways. And so, I did blank. If you were to look back over the last six weeks, six months, twelve months, do you have any and so moments? doesn't have to be heroic. It doesn't have to be uh, monumental. But it needs to be there. That because God has led you in a particular direction, you've made a choice. If you don't have any and so moments... Over the last few weeks, months, even over the last, up to the last year, I would say, who's calling the shots? Surely he hadn't been quiet for a year. There's, if you have nothing in your life where you can say, I've done this because of what he said to me over the last, again, six, 12 months, I would, to me, that's a red flag. I won't make a blanket statement. It's a red flag that maybe you're not following him as much as you're charting your own course. If for some of you, you're wrestling that with that right now, there's something he's put in your heart. There's something you feel like, you know what, I need to do this, I need to quit doing this, I need to move in this direction, and you're kind of mulling and chewing all that over. My encouragement to you is once you've settled in your heart, hey, this is the Lord, you've got to move out, you've got to pull the trigger. We say to our children, slow obedience is disobedience, and the same thing is true. With the Lord. Once you know it's Him, then you move out. You don't need to spend a bunch of time wondering. At that point, once it's clear to you, this is God's thing for me, then there needs to be an and so for you. And so I did. Fill in the blank. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to Him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by Him in the Jordan River. John doing his deal it provoked a response from the people. They confessed, which was public. They repented. That was that's turning from sin, turning towards righteousness, and they were baptized. They went to the river. Most likely, they were dunked uh, in the river. Uh, you can go back and look in Matthew and Luke. There's a lot more uh, detail around what it means, what John expected in terms of repentance. It wasn't saying "I'm sorry." He expected change in behavior and was very specific with people. This is what it looks like for you to repent. We don't have time to look at that. You can go back on your own and look at those verses. For us, I think the thing to see is you doing your deal will provoke a response, and that response will be preparing the way for Jesus. That's what it was for John. Him doing his thing provoked people to confess, to repent, and to be baptized, to get ready for what God was doing among them, what God was about to do among them, and the same thing is true for you. You might not ever baptize anybody. You might not ever pray a prayer with somebody to see them come into the kingdom. That's don't worry about that. If you're doing your deal, there will be fruit. You should be able to look back again over the last few months, even the last year, and see, hey, people, I'm helping people. I'm preparing them to receive and then follow Jesus. And again, they might they might not have gone all the way yet. But they're closer because you've been doing your deal. And for some of us, we think, well, I'm not aggressive. I'm more passive. I'm more behind the scenes. I'm not out front. I don't like talking in front of people. I'm not an evangelist. I don't know the Bible. We give our, there's a thousand excuses that we give and none of it matters. If God's created the thing for you, if you'll do the thing that He's created for you, then you're contributing to what He's doing. Whether you can see it or not is irrelevant. If you can just rest in the fact that you're doing your deal, then God will use you to produce eternal fruit. Period. And it doesn't matter if you feel like you're in the dark and you're in the back and nobody sees you and nobody, none of that matters at all. Likewise, it doesn't matter if you're up front and everybody sees you. If you're not, if you're doing your deal, you will provoke a response and it will be preparing the way for Jesus, I want to sidetrack here for a second. With John, it was confession, repentance. We're going to talk about that next week. Baptism, we've talked about that before. This idea of confession, I think we've, we've kind of lost that um, as a people. Our initial response when someone points out a fault, a weakness, a shortcoming is to hide it. We want to cover that thing. Uh, it goes all the way back to the garden. After Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was they sowed fig leaves for themselves to cover the areas where they felt shame. And we do the same thing. We want to cover those areas up, which is make excuses, justify, rationalize. The last thing we want to do is acknowledge, admit, confess. And that's the thing that God is asking for. Confession prepares the way for the Lord to come into our lives in a way that hiding and denying and rationalizing and justifying just doesn't do. God gives grace to the humble and confessing is an expression of humility. It opens us up to receive the grace of God in a way that hiding does not. And and you may say, and I would agree 100%, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 100%. If you've sinned, if you've missed the mark in some way, whether that's a behaviorally or a mindset or whatever, ultimately that's a sin against God and we need to confess it to him and he's the one that forgives us. You don't need to go to a priest, you don't need to come to me, you've got direct access to the Father through Jesus. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. That's a different dynamic. James isn't talking about forgiveness. If you read that, the context is actually physical healing. And he 's broadened that a bit, and i don 't understand that completely, but it 's in there, and the best I can come up with is choosing to confess to one another again as an expression of humility, and God gives grace to the humble, so it'll, it, it it opens us up to His grace in a way that hiding those things doesn't. Can you still be forgiven without confessing your sins to one another? Yes, we confess God is the one who forgives. Can you be healed without confessing your sins? to one another. I would say if you're asking the question, why, why are you asking the question? What are you afraid of? What are you protecting? What is it that you're unwilling to share? That's, that's not, you're move, you're moving in the wrong direction at that point when you're trying to figure out how little you can share and still be okay. You've missed it. You've missed, you've missed it. In Mark, it appears that what was happening was John was calling these people out. They were coming out into the desert and before he dunked them under the water, they confessed their sins publicly. It's hyperbole, but he says the whole countryside came out. So that's all of your people standing out on the riverbank and right before you're dunked, you tell them what you've done wrong. That's not what I'm saying we're going to do. You don't have to come get the microphone and share your business with everybody. There needs to be one or two people who you regularly are in a relationship where you are confessing your sins to. When I say sins, don't just hear the time that I got mad and flip somebody off or cuss somebody out. No, it's anywhere that you're missing the mark. Not just sinful behavior, but also mindsets. Anywhere where you're missing the mark, where you feel convicted and you know what that feels like. You know what it feels like when you've done something wrong. The Holy Spirit pricks your heart and you, you know that feeling. When that, whatever those things are that he's bringing conviction around, you need to have somebody that you confess to. I've told you before, I don't think spouses, I don't think spouses are great accountability partners. So my recommendation is not to confess all of your sins to your spouse. You need guys, you need guys, girls, you need girls. I'm in a group every Thursday morning, we get together, and that's the whole point is to confess our sins. These are some of the kind of questions that we ask each other. We have these things out front if you're interested. You can grab one if you're interested in hooking up with a couple of other people. We're not going to matchmake you, but uh, you have friends and so you can do that. Grab one of these, call somebody. It's an awkward conversation. Hey, I want to confess my sins to you. Great, I was hoping you'd call and ask me to do that. That's weird initially, but you can find somebody. We ask questions like this. Have you been a testimony this week to the greatness of Jesus with your words and actions? So last week, I said no. And it wasn't because of anything I had necessarily committed. I'm the coach of one of my kids' soccer teams, and we're not good in the traditional sense of wins and losses. That's, you can't judge us based on that. And so, I was realizing we had a, on Saturdays, I was a grouch. I was grumpy, I was grouchy. And we had a game at 4 o'clock, not yesterday, but last Saturday, and I was a grouch all day. And we were driving down to this game, and I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about it during the game, and we were done, and I realized what had happened was I was allowing my identity to be wrapped up in how these 8-year-olds performed on the soccer field. Sad, but true. That's what had happened. Now, how they performed 100% could be a reflection on me as a coach, whether I'm a good coach or a bad coach. That has no effect on who I am in the Lord. That's what Jamie talked about last week. Our identity is secure. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Period. Has nothing to do with how these nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds play. That's what God has declared. And that is locked up 100% airtight. And for me to allow anything else, particularly something as silly as youth soccer... To shake this over here, that's a sin. I've missed the mark, and I can confess that to the Lord absolutely and be forgiven. But I needed to confess that to these guys. I needed to be willing to say, "Hey, this is an area where I was an idiot, and I missed it." And there's healing that comes through that. So again, it's not just the behaviors that you're th- that maybe are coming to your mind when I think when I say confession. Any area where you've missed the mark. We ask each other, just real quick, have you been exposed to sexually alluring material or allowed your mind to entertain inappropriate sexual thoughts? Lacked integrity in your financial dealings? Have you been honoring, understanding, and generous in your important relationships? That's a great question. Damaged another person by your words, either behind their back or face to face? Have you given in to an addictive behavior? Have you continued to remain angry towards someone? Have you secretly wished for another's misfortune? Those questions get at the Part of who we are you don't have to use these but you need to be in some type of regular relationship where you're confessing your sins it doesn't mean that every week it's going to be hours and hours of weeping and gnashing of teeth there's three of us and we get through it in an hour but we're really awesome people and so we don't mess up it's not that it's that we've been meeting together for a long time and we kind of got through a lot of the big stuff at the beginning and so now we, we're really, it's tune-ups at this point. It doesn't take long, and it doesn't have, you get it. I'm not going to beat the dead horse anymore. Find somebody that you can confess. That prepares the way for the Lord in your life in a way that just asking for forgiveness with the Lord won't. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. John shaped his lifestyle around his deal. So he was called to be, the, his thing was to be this guy, who would, this messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. And he then bent his life around that. He dressed like a prophet. If you read Second Kings, I think it's 1, 7 or 8. Elijah, the prophet, dressed just like John is. This, whatever this deal looked like with camel's hair and the belt, John lived in the desert, separate from everyone else. His diet was different. He didn't eat meat. He didn't drink wine. He ate insects and honey. All of that was him playing the part. And I don't mean that in any sense of any superficial sense. He allowed the fact that he was supposed to be this messenger, this one calling out in the wilderness to his own people, to the Jews, to repent. And to be baptized. And as a side note, Jews weren't baptized. That's, they didn't do that. Converts to Judaism might be baptized. But for John to say to the Jews, you're not ready. Of course they're ready. They're the Jews. They're God's chosen people. Of course they're ready for whatever he wants them to do. And John is saying, you don't get it. You're not ready. He he was an outsider in his life. He shaped his life around that. I think it's in Matthew. I can't recall exactly which... Um, place, it's either Matthew or Luke. The, the, um, in, in talking about John, it looks like he had been living in the desert. Not that he had been living in town and then he went to the desert to start his ministry, but that he had been living out there prior to, and God called him in the desert, out of the desert, then called people to him and to do this baptizing thing. I don't know if that's really the way it worked, but that's the way it appears textually. He shaped his life, his, where he lived, what he ate and what he wore around his deal and the same thing is true for us God, once God tells you hey this is the thing I want you to do he expects you to shape your life around it not to try to fit it in around the edges of what you're already doing and I'm not going to give you any specifics because the specifics are as individual as you are it depends on what he's called you to do and what it would take in your life but he 100% will say hey this is the thing I want you to do. And you say, but I don't have time. And he'll say, make time. Well, I don't know how. Cut something. What? Any, just cut something. Make time. Figure it out. For some of you, it'll mean changing jobs. For some of you, it'll mean changing careers. Moving. Everything's on the table. Seek first the kingdom of God. What good does it do to gain your whole soul, or to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? The answer is done to you any good. And so once He's told you this is the thing, then move to China if you've got to move to China. You might not have to. But if you do, you do. And that's not heroic, and it's not special. It's regular. That's just obedience. And the same thing is true for the rest of us. I don't mean that in any way. That's not a scary thing. Because again, three points ago, the things that He's created for you are better than anything you can create for yourself. It will fit you perfectly perfectly if you will give yourself to it. So make the space, make the lifestyle choices, whatever those look like. If you know what he's called you to, then he expects you to make the choices you have to make in your life. Shape your life around this revelation. Last. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John stayed within the boundaries that God had set for him. This is um, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3. There's this controversy about um, people being baptized and how you should be ceremonial, how people should be washed. I'm going to skip all that and uh, start in verse 26 they, these disciples, um, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, that's Jesus, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. You hear what they're saying. His church is bigger than your church. He's more popular than you are. Listen to this response. This is beautiful. To this response, or to this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of Him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. You see the picture there. What John is saying is there's a fence for me. God has set a fence for me. And that's all I can do. A man can only receive what, what heaven has given to him. Psalm 16 says, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. For all of us, there are boundary lines. There's limitations in our lives. And they've been set there by the Lord. And within those limits, within those fences, we've got total freedom. We can run as fast as we can run. The danger is when we try to jump the fence. When I like your boundary lines better than I like mine. And I try to get in your yard and play. Or I try to move my fences out because I want more. That's when danger comes. That's when we're living outside of the grace of God. And that's bad news. But within your fences, within the boundary lines that He's laid for you, you've got a massive amount of freedom. And in that, what He's saying is enjoy, live, do. There's a place, I think it's in 1 Kings, where Samuel, who's a prophet, says to Saul, who's the first king, whatever your hand finds for you to do, do it. Because Saul was doing his thing. He'd become the king. He was living in his deal. And so Samuel says to him, from the Lord, just do whatever your hand finds you to do. You're in the sweet spot now. You're living in these boundaries that God has laid for you. Now Saul messed up huge, but at that moment, he's basically getting a a pass. Go. And God gives every one of us the same thing. If you'll do the work of discerning, God determines, we've already said that, God determines what our deal is. We discern, we discover. Once you know what it is, discern where the boundary lines are for you. Where are the fences God has put up in your life? Are all of us in kindergarten were told a lie that if we believe it, we can achieve it? That's not true. The only thing that you can achieve are the things that God has for you. That's what you need to achieve. It's better than anything you could believe anyway. Figure out what those things are where those boundary lines are, where are the fences? We all have them. And within that, no, you've got a massive amount of freedom to live your life. You don't have to tiptoe. You don't have to worry about falling off the tightrope. You can just run all the way to the edge. Just don't jump over the fence because then you've moved outside of the grace of God. And that's not where you want to be. For all of us, we need to recognize what's my deal, what's your deal, and what's his deal. John knew, listen, I, just, I baptize with water. That's what I do. This is an outward symbol of a cleansing. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you a new heart. That's not my thing. I can't give you a new heart. I can call you to repent, and I can dump you in the river. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize the same thing. What's my job here? I don't give anybody a new heart. I don't save anybody. My job is to prepare the way and your job is to prepare the way. That's it. We want to point people to Jesus. John bent over backwards to make sure nobody confused him with the Messiah. Read the first chapter of the Gospel of John and he is adamant, it's not me. And we all we need that same sense of what I'm not stepping on, I'm not casting a shadow on Jesus. The spotlight's got to be 100% on Him. When you're doing your deal, there will be fruit, there will be success, there will be accolades, because you're going to be in your sweet spot. You're going to be doing the thing God has gifted and created you to do. People are going to notice. Again, it provokes a response. And you don't have to do the false humility deal and all, oh, I'm nothing. You don't have to do that. But what you do need to make sure is that you never cross the line. Of thinking it's about you. Or me thinking it's about me. We don't want to cast a shadow on him at all. Make sure the spotlight is firmly on Jesus. And we're not stealing any of the glory that's rightfully his. that's part of recognizing where our fences are. I don't save anybody. And neither do you. I'm nobody's Messiah. And neither are you. My job is just to point to him. And do my part. And trust that he's going to get the glory. And he's going to do the work that really matters. In terms of transforming people's hearts and transforming their lives, you get that. Okay, let's pray. A couple of groups. I just want to address, if this is you, I want you to grab onto it and respond however you want. I'll be up front. We'll have a couple other ministry teams up front. We'd love to pray with you. You can come and kneel um, down on these chairs that are empty. Make that an altar. This first one's tricky. Um, Have a sense there may be someone in here who has had an abortion in the past. And it's not something that you've, you obviously don't publicize that. And even when I, we prayed earlier for people who lost a child, you weren't sure if you could raise your hand or not. And what I want to say to you is that's not the unforgivable sin. And if you'll bring that into the light, He'll heal it and He'll heal you and you don't have to have that scarlet a on your chest anymore. You don't have to be defined by a decision you made in the past. Expanding from there. If for any of you, when I was talking about confession, if there was stuff that popped up in your mind and your first thought was how far down can I shove that? That is not coming out of me. I want to encourage you to confess that. You probably have already asked for forgiveness for that, but you need to confess it to someone and receive the grace that God has for you in the body of Christ. If you confess it to us up front, what you say to us stays with us. We won't, even the, the ministry teams won't even share it with me. I want to encourage you to be bold, to confess those things, whatever they are. And you'll experience a level of of healing that that you have not known. And you'll really be set free to run. Until you confess those things, you're going to have that chain around your ankle and it's going to hold you back. And then last would be people, every time I talk about the deal stuff, you're rolling your eyes and you're trying just watching, tapping your foot. You're tired of it. You don't get it. It doesn't work for you. I want to encourage you to re-up. Ask, he's got. If you're a person, and you are, He has a deal for you. There are good works He's created for you to do. Ask Him to reveal those things to you. Ask Him. Say, God, is there something in me that's preventing me from hearing you? Is there anything in me that needs to change? Put me in a place where I can hear you clearly. Don't beat yourself up. Just ask. And if nothing comes to mind, Then say, I'm here. I'm waiting. Speak to me in a way that I would understand. Because I want to know what you have for me. I'll run after it. I just need to know what direction to run in. You can pray by yourself. We'd love to pray with you about that as well. So Lord, I just pray that over the next five minutes or whatever, that you would move in our hearts. We would be uh, sensitive to you and receptive to how you're leading us if the Lord is stirring your heart in any way I'd encourage you to respond in Jesus name amen you guys can just uh, stay seated and but